Greetings, everybody. This is the third time in only six or seven months where I've had to have the displeasure of opening a show by announcing that a friend of the show and past guest has passed away. For those of you who have not yet heard the news, Ed Rooksby passed away this past weekend, uh, quite suddenly and unexpectedly. He was fighting a very public battle, a brave battle with what they call long covid which is a term that is reserved for someone who, as the name implies, has an extended bout with COVID. Ed's long COVID was documented in much detail in a blog piece from several months ago, and he suffered greatly. But at this point in time, the cause of his death, the precise cause, we know the reason for his death, but the precise cause of death is unknown. And so all I will say is that condolences go out to his family of course and his friends i have been in touch with his brother his family is grieving as you might expect for those of you who would like to leave well wishes you can shoot me a dm on twitter or on patreon and i'll let you know where you can direct those well wishes ed of course was a very quiet man he was a gentleman but he was an extraordinary intellect and i had him on the show several times although it's been far too long since I did have him on the show. He was a scholar of socialist transition, a scholar of the Second International, a scholar of uh, Nikos Poulantzas and state theory, a scholar who approached the seriousness of socialist history and strategy in such a way that is unparalleled by many others. And his loss is honestly just devastating at this point, you know, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we lost Michael Brooks, an astonishing loss, a tremendous defeat. He was a once-in-a-generation, perhaps, talent when it comes to being an on-air personality. He just had so much of it. He was comical. He was astute. He was an excellent communicator. Of course, in December, we lost Leo Panich. You guys will know that. He was one of the OGs of the, you know, the, the socialist strategy and theory world. He was a mentor to so many, and now we have lost Ed Rooksby. Um, they say that bad things happen in threes. Um, I pray to God that this is the last one. Um, Ed's loss will be sticking with me as long, if not longer, than the loss of the two others because he and I, as you're, I think, going to see on this episode that I'm about to re-air, which featured um, a lengthy discussion about Ed's upcoming uh, forthcoming work, uh, Ed and I shared a mind meld, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, that is in on one, in one sense, that is far too flattering of a thing to say about myself because Ed was far uh, above me in, in the sense of being well-read and his intellect. And he was far above almost everyone. Anybody who knows him has said as much in their memorials and eulogies. But uh, he and I had a mind meld when it comes to interpretation of socialist history the demands uh, and the sort of outlines of socialist strategy and what to make of all of this on a macro strategical historical level. Uh, I opened up a couple of episodes that I had with him. I can't remember if it's this one or not by, by saying that I'm really excited about his forthcoming book, but it's one that I myself had thought many, many times about writing, but I'm glad that he was around because I'm glad that he was going to be the one to write it, not me. Um, Ed publicly 
struggled with long COVID over the past year. He was unable to make a lot of headway in his writing of that book, and I am sad to say that it will not be released in his lifetime. I have reached out to his family to see whether or not uh, myself or uh, maybe others out there could uh, get together pieces of that manuscript and get it published in some way, shape, or form. Because as you're about to see in this episode, he was chewing on in a very serious way, far and above, I think, head and shoulders above anybody else doing so. He was chewing on some of the most important and pressing questions for the socialist movement today. And he talks about, you know, Lenin and the Bolsheviks and dual power and the democratic road to socialism, but in a way that is not often seen. He doesn't give in to fairy tales and campfireside stories about glorious revolution and after the revolution and smashing the state and smashing capitalism. He grapples with these questions very seriously, very soberly, never giving up on the promise of Marx's vision for socialism, but also understanding that the path taken by some of these socialist luminaries over the past 100, 150 years is at best a fraught one and one that is perhaps pockmarked with faults, fault lines, contradictions, traps, all the things that I talk about on DPS every single fucking week, and it just breaks my heart that this man's not going to be around to finish out that work. Uh, this loss hits me personally as the, and, and as the podcast host of DPS on the same level as Leo's loss. Um, I hadn't had Ed on the show in uh, over a year, uh, partially because of COVID, partially because of the Bernie wave, because this show has been unabashed in terms of its optimism about the, you know, the possibilities of the moment. Right? The possibilities of the Bernie campaign, the possibilities of this upsurge in left social democratic struggle inside the United States. And I conscientiously left behind these kind of macro historical strategic debates, uh, planning to pick those back up again once this electoral surge subsided, as it would. It always does. It always will subside. And um, again, uh, just gutted at the idea that I'm not going to be able to have Ed back on the show to try to make sense of all of this stuff that's gone on in the sort of uh, under the sign of left populism, under the sign of left social democracy, under the sign of democratic socialism. We're not going to ever get to have that conversation. Um, and here we are again. Uh, I'm very sorry to be bringing you this bad news. Uh, so soon after the latest round of bad news, I know this loss will hit a lot of you hard. It was uh, one of my great honors, as I said with Leo Panich, it's one of my great honors to have popularized Ed's thought, particularly for an American audience. His performances had nothing to do with me. His performances on DPS uh, during the several times he was on the show just captivated my audience and me, but many of you opening your eyes to a broad set of possibilities, a broad broad ways of understanding and framing the capitalist state and socialist strategy, the democratic road to socialism, dual power, problematizing some of the shibboleths that we have inherited from Leninism, from Marxism, you name it. The man, uh, he just had it. And uh, we're going to miss him a lot. 
and uh, the best thing I can do in lieu of that book that perhaps will never see the light of day, perhaps it will, I don't know. In lieu of that, I can offer um, uh, several hours of interviews with Ed. So this episode, I have um, edited it, I have remastered it. It may be a little bit chopped up. I've taken some pieces out. Um, I've re-included some other pieces that were left out from the first airing. So pardon any choppiness, pardon any pieces that look that seem like maybe they don't immediately fit together. Uh, but we're going to make this work because the critical insights are still very much there. Uh, classic Ed Rooksby. I hope you guys enjoy. Again, condolences out to the family. We will resume our regularly scheduled interview routine here uh, next week. I have a number of really solid interviews coming at you um, very much uh, proudly in the rich tradition set forth on this show by the likes of Ed Rooksby. You know, uh, it, it, they match up to his degree of rigor as closely as anyone could anyway. And I've got Adam Hilton. He's going to be back on the show talking about state theory and the Democratic Party and the kind of uh, complexity of institutions. Um, I've got Micah Utrecht, deputy editor at Jacobin Magazine, coming on to talk about an essay he wrote about Mike Davis, another socialist luminary, and we cover some of the most controversial conversations, controversial topics on the American and international left. So you guys aren't going to want to miss that. I have a forthcoming episode with Eric Blanc about a piece he wrote in Jacobin comparing the birth of the Labor Party out of the Liberal Party in Britain uh, with perhaps a dirty break strategy here in the United States, a way to break out of the two-party stagnation that we find ourselves in in the U.S. So if you guys will uh, abide, and I think you will very uh, happily abide me as I replay some of these episodes, because you will be reminded if they could be the first time you've ever heard them. And if they are, lucky you, lucky you, because you're in for a real treat. If they're the second time that you've heard them, then um, enjoy. I bet that you were gobsmacked the first time around, and maybe the second time around you can make more sense of it. I know that uh, after listening to these on, on four, five, six occasions, I, I get a, a little nugget, uh, a fresh nugget every time. So please enjoy. If you like this uh, episode, if you like this podcast, if you think it's important, if you think it's a unique presence in the world. And I know Ed did. Ed was always delighted to come on. Our exchange always prompted him to write a very thoughtful blog piece. I know that um, he really thrived off of these interactions. But anyhow, if you enjoy this program, if you think it's important, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. The democratic road to socialism is twisted and pockmarked with contradictions, and it's going to be a long journey, but uh, we cannot do it without socialist education. And that's what this project is all about. So patreon.com slash deadpundits, become a subscriber today, and please enjoy this re-airing of my interview with Ed Rooksby from a couple of years back. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And our guest today, we are very pleased to bring back on the show uh, Ed Rooksby. Ed Rooksby is a lecturer at Ruskin College. He studies political theory, and he's currently writing a really fascinating book that is many years in the making. And I'm very excited for its release in the coming years. It's called Taking Power, Reform, 
revolution socialist strategy. Ed, thanks so much. You're our first repeat guest on uh, Dead Pundits. How does it feel? Blimey. Oh, that's, that feels amazing. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> We're very pleased to have you back Good. on the show. Thank uh, long, you. Long-time listeners of the show will know that Ed joined me in season one some months ago to talk about socialist strategy and state theory. And in many ways, this uh, show will be, uh, we, will, we will reprise some of those arguments and extend them further. Um, in the wake of some of the electoral successes in the United States and the Corbyn movement in the UK and elsewhere across the world, uh, the question of socialist strategy is definitely on the minds of socialists and good Marxists and good progressives, I should say, uh, everywhere. And so this episode, we're going, to, we're going to try to break down one of the key debates, I think, that really exemplifies uh, you know, the, the, the central questions and dilemmas inside of the socialist movement uh, since, since uh, the days of Marx and certainly through the Russian Revolution and Lenin and, and thereafter. And that is this question of dual power versus something that might be called <laughs> democratic socialism. And uh, I'm not sure that they necessarily have to be in tension, but essentially what we're going to try to do is break down this theory of dual power and then assess the actually existing history of dual power. And uh, so, yeah, before we do that, Ed, uh, mm. tell us a little bit about your project, uh, this book, Taking Power, Reform, Revolution, and Socialist Strategy. What led you in this direction? It's been a long time coming. And give us a quick little summary of uh, the kind of questions that you're trying to address. Well, it comes out of... Um I don't know, sort of a sort of personal feeling of wanting to get to the bottom of something that's always bothered me. So I've always thought of myself as some kind of socialist and gone through a you know series of evolutions over the years. And one of the biggest influences I had was doing a dissertation uh, for my MA. And I looked at the question of reform versus revolution and read the classic texts like Bernstein and Luxembourg and Lenin, Kautsky and so on. And... Um, wanted to come down on one side or the other and I couldn't <laughs> the closest approximation <laughs> to my what I thought was um a book by Ralph Miliband called Marxism and Politics where he yeah. uh, essentially comes up with it's not it's not without his problems but he comes up with a kind of what he calls a sort of muscular reformism or a left reformist strategy and that seemed to me the most intuitively plausible of those different kind of you know renditions of the classical strategies and since then, I, I've um, I've uh, engaged more with uh, Nikos Boulansis and with his conception of the revolutionary road to democratic socialism, which he calls it, slightly um, perhaps provocatively in places, and trying to think through some of the questions that I think get glossed over in this debate. I don't think I've been uh, quite pinpointed about what the state is, where does capitalist power lie, um, what are the limits to reform? What are the kind of what's the feasibility and practicality of revolutionary rupture? What does that mean today? So, I mean, so my book focuses on those kind of questions. So I'm going to start with a an overview of the classic dilemmas of the Second International uh, and the kind of the confrontation between the revisionists and the Versicommers and the kind of orthodox Marxists, mm -hmm. uh, and then move to an analysis of reformism and its problems historic, theoretically and practically historically and then to uh, what I'm going to broadly call Leninism and uh, look at some of the theoretical and concrete problems that that encountered in practice before trying to basically I think I, what I can I can call it now is though I resisted this term for a long time trying to 
resuscitate left Eurocommunism or something similar. You know, the sort of, um, uh, in fact, it's almost like a, a sort of centrism of the old Second International, a position that refuses parliamentary reformism on the one hand, but also uh, refuses the idea of the kind of, you know, that the, the absolute alternative of, of insurrection and total total transformation uh, of the politics and the economy. So that's where I am, hoping to get this book done at some point in the next, well, before I die, that would be nice. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, moving move there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is really exciting. I got to say, you know, I, I told you off air and, and uh, I sort of like uh, I mentioned this in, in our first episode that we did together. It's like, you know, I, the reason why I wanted to bring you back on and the reason why I love your work so much is if, if my field, uh, you know, was was more explicitly political theory, political science, like that would be the kind of book that I would love to write. And, you know, maybe maybe I'll add on to it someday. But for now, uh, it's in capable hands with you, and I'm really excited for you to develop some of these questions. I mean, if, m- not only just because I'm interested in them broadly, you know, in an academic intellectual sense, but because they're some of the most pressing political questions that I think that the socialist movement faces today. And and you look around, and, and not to denigrate anyone who's who's doing intellectual work these days, because I think it's all worthwhile in its own right. But if you look around, there just aren't enough people asking these questions. So we sort of throw around these, this notion of reform versus revolution. We sort of – everyone right now is excited, I think, about the socialist upsurge and electoral politics and movement, this kind of inside-outside strategy that I try to articulate here on Ted Pundit Society. And yet there's very little work that's being done to really uh, try to address these questions in a systematic way, be it historical, theoretical – or, mm. or strategic or otherwise. And I think, you know, this book is really exciting. So I wanted to bring you on the show to do something that's very risky. And to your credit, very few scholars will agree to do it, to do it which is to talk <laughs> about a tentative uh, work in progress. It's very risky. <laughs> mm. so, uh, so, so let's do it now. One of the sure. central questions I think that motivates this show is what is left of revolutionary socialism? What, what remains, I should say? I myself came into the world of Marxism as a revolutionary socialist. I don't like to talk too much about my own personal biography on the show, but some folks will already know this. And I was sort of seduced by that in the pre-occupy political scene, which was markedly different than the one we find ourselves in today in terms of prospects. And uh, this was in the, the era of Obama and before uh, which so so the the left had a very very different character that was still marked I think in the sort of anti globalization movement of the late nineties and early aughts, and uh, so this this is near and dear to my heart. And a lot of these people will point to uh, Lenin and his State and Revolution book uh, that was very instrumental in uh, granting people an understanding of the state, class formation, and how to, uh, quote-unquote, smash the state and achieve a, a proper socialist society. So give yeah. us a quick gloss. What What is the theory of dual power? How did it operate in Lenin's time, and how has it been transformed today? And then we'll sort of zero in on these themes as we go. Well, it emerges in practice really i mean for when you look at the development of lenin's thought before the experience of the february revolution in russia uh, the overthrow of the tsar and the implementation you know the kind of coming to being the provisional government mm-hmm. um lenin doesn't talk about so- uh, soviets and uh, doesn't talk about dual power particularly it seems to have a, a fairly sort of standard orthodox second international uh, understanding of what um socialism might mean it seems to be a sort of you know process of 
<clears throat> centralization of economic management in the hands of the state, somehow in the hands of the proletariat, you know, uh, probably via the hands of the party which represents them. But it's the experience of the Soviets and going back to the experience of 1905 when there was a similar process of contestation from some Soviets in Russia and the major urban centres that gets Lenin thinking about what's the actual, what's the concrete process unfolding in Russia right now? Uh, how is working class ex- uh, power expressing itself? What's, what, what are the kind of major, what are the pivots of contestation between the reactionary power or the counter-revolution on the one hand and the revolution on the other? How do we weld together the, the revolutionary forces of the peasantry and the proletariat um, in Russia? And the, um, he's won quite late in the day to the idea of Soviets. It's only in, I think it's in actually in the process of writing what becomes the pamphlet State and Revolution that Lenin rips up his previous... He's going to write a book, I think he's attacking Bukharin, actually, and Panakuk, who are, who are taking a, a more pro-Soviet line, and, and Lenin's trying to say that the Soviets are just... It's just syndicalism, this sort of thing. And he switches, and he flips, and says, no, actually, this is the secret. And he goes back to what Marx and Engels, Marx particularly wrote about uh, the Paris Commune and seems to have an epiphany and realises that um, this is the, that the Soviets are like the Paris Commune. This is the form of, uh, of what working class power is going to look like. It's the, this, it's what Engels talks about as being, you know, this, this is the, this is the dictator of the proletariat. It looks like the, the Paris Commune. And so his, his, his theory of dual power comes out of that during the kind of fraught circumstances of the February Revolution, its aftermath, and he he realizes that um, what's happening is a sort of process of polarization where counter-revolutionary forces are increasingly cohering on the old state apparatus, mm-hmm. its ministries, its police force, you know, its bureaucracy, and the revolutionary powers are coalescing around the Soviets. And so he argues that what's emerging is a situation of dual power, a sort of contestation for legitimacy among the people. You know, where does real power lie? Is it with the Soviets or is it with the constituent assembly and the old state? And Lenin says, right, we've got to, we've got to throw our weight behind the Soviets. And, what, and following through the logic of this, what does it mean? Well, it means that the Soviets is the, is the kind of embryonic form of the, the dictators that the proletariat and beyond that socialism and communism and we need to there needs to be some resolution of this dual power situation one of these two powers they can't coexist forever one of them's got to overwhelm and destroy the other so it must lead to insurrection and to the destruction of one of these two poles of that dual power of that counterposition and that becomes the model of the the October Revolution, where at least in, you know, in the kind of slogans, at least what's happening there is the Soviets, and the, demo- the form of democracy it embodies, uh, bursts through the limits of bourgeois democracy and overwhelms the old institutions, and they kind of you know are, are obliterated, and the new power of the of the of the Soviets, uh, i.e. the proletariat, and in alliance with the peasantry, is now the the kind of sovereign power. In, in Russia, and this embodies the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, and this model of revolutionary change, it sort of becomes like a kind of general law. This is the way it's going to look like in every revolution, the German revolution, in any kind of British revolution, as the revolution spreads from Russia, as 
Trotsky and Lenin, Lenin's one to Trotsky's view of permanent revolution. Uh, this is the this is the form it's going to take as the as the Russian Revolution in the week you know ch- uh, week of the imperialist chain spreads into Germany and spreads beyond into Western Europe. It's going to take the form of dual power, and so that Leninist tradition coalesces at, at that point. It becomes a sort of um, it becomes the core commitment of the Leninist perspective that we still see today. You know, this is the form that revolution takes. Right, right. So, I mean, that was an excellent summary of of, of the kind of uh, you know the historical basis, the alleged historical basis of dual power. I don't, I don't want to alarm any of my listeners, though. Uh, I mean, I think that like we have some people there who are who are hanging on to every word, who have really delved into the history of the Russian Revolution. Uh, perhaps you know they caught up on it with China Mieville's October book that came out last year and the hundredth anniversary of the of nineteen seventeen events. Uh, and the, but there are also going to be others out there who are just completely confused about everything that. We that we just put forward. So I don't, I don't, I don't want anyone to feel like this episode is going to be over their heads. Uh, there will be some historical, you know, sort of uh, allusions and allegories, but, uh, but moving forward, we're going to be uh, much more practically oriented and we're going to spell this out in, in theoretical terms and, and practical terms that I think every, all of my listeners, uh, you know, should, should, should be able to understand. Uh, but just, just moving forward, um, I think one of the central things that we want to spell out for people in, in the development of dual power that, that will be relatable to anyone who's listening is this transition, uh, this transition in the – take us, take us to the October Revolution. Mm. Very, very you know, schematically, understandably. Uh, take us to the October Revolution and tell us how that uh, sort of progressed. Well, so, so the background is that Russia – and the legitimacy of the Tsarist state before the February Revolution is in tatters because of the virtual collapse of the of, uh, and the impoverishment of Russia because of the First World War. And so there's mutiny amongst the soldiers in the front, and there's uh, all sorts of hardship amongst the people. There's economic, more or less economic collapse. And so the Tsarist, the, the Tsarist regime is overthrown and a new um, kind of liberal democracy is brought into being via moderate, inverted commas, moderate socialists, which coalesces under several iterations of the provisional government, but Kerensky is the kind of main figure, a socialist who becomes the leader um, for a while. And he's, he's the guy that gets overthrown in the October Revolution, mainly because what the, the Bolsheviks are very clever about is they they, they kind of distill the grievances of the people into a slogan about bread, peace and land. You know, what do we what do we want? We want we want people to be fed. Uh, we want the war to end now. We can't keep on fighting it, which the provisional government is doing. It's carrying on the war uh, against Germany in particular. And we want to redistribute land to the peasants because there's all sorts of peasant you know unrest at the time. And essentially the insurrection in October is organised to coincide with, I think it's the second Congress of the All-Russian Congress of Soviets. And they sort of... Um, the second and final conference. <laughs> no, there are others, but it's perhaps the last <laughs> the last actual uh, right. proper one. I, I um, suppose that is a, co- a controversial uh, claim, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. so, so the, the, the seizure of power itself is, is pretty easy. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the old regime's demoralised. 
and the insurrection proceeds with with ease. There's hardly any blood, uh, as far as I remember, hardly anyone gets killed. It's just a, a question of seizing the key installations of power in, in the capital, St. Petersburg, and in the other big cities like Moscow. And what comes to power is the Bolsheviks at the head of a, a regime which says it is basing itself on the power of the Soviets. And soon after that, the Constituent Assembly, the Parliament of Russia, is abolished um, because it seemed to be superfluous, because this new form of democracy has emerged, a much more democratic form of the Soviets, which are kind of councils of people, sometimes based on localities, they're kind of geographic units, but often they're interspersed with, they merge with factory committees, which are based on kind of workplace-based democracy, which is really, in a way, the powerhouse of the revolution in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And also the committees of, of soldiers is very important, of course. And at the head of this new government is are the Bolsheviks, but they have alliance an alliance with the left SRs, the left socialist revolutionaries, who are a, a, a group who have a, a base in the peasantry much more than they do with the urban proletariat. But it is a kind of a coalition of forces that come to power and they declare the overthrow of the bourgeois regime and they embark on the process of constructing the dictatorship of the the proletariat, sort of referencing, I guess, uh, Lenin's ideas that have been put forward relatively recently in the state and, and revolution. So that's the kind of blueprint, if you like, the idea of a conciliar a kind of council structure, a kind of pyramid of councils where grassroots organs of democracy elect delegates to a higher organ, say, you know, industry level or um, city level, municipal level, and then another one at regional level until they reach the top, which is the the Congress of, of Soviets. And this is supposed to be the kind of sovereign body of a new form of democracy, which embodies workers' power and starts to undo the distinction between politics, if you like, and economics, you know, where where politics, these councils are based often in the workplace. So it kind of breaks down that classic liberal distinction between the realm of democracy, which holds only in relation to politics, in relation to a sort of uh, quite circumscribed area of life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but in which economics and the workplace is the realm of the private, you know, the realm realm in which you're kind of bossed around by the capitalists. Um, And that's, that's that's the sort of motivating idea. So the theory, the theory and strategy of dual power emerges in the in the context of the the Russian Revolution. Uh, Lenin sort of uh, you know uh, refines these notions in in a, in a very real sense. Uh, one of the directions I want to head to first before we talk about how revolutionary socialism is manifested in our in our contemporary context is there's a fantastic book by this man named T.H. Rigby. He's kind of in the old guard, I've been told. Uh, he wrote a fantastic book uh, several decades ago. It's called Lenin's Government. And it makes a really powerful and important uh, case. I think it's, it, it, it revises the uh, accepted account that is still very much bandied about on, in left circles about just what the nature was of that Russian revolution. The story goes that uh, after the October Revolution, whether folks know exactly how that happened or how that didn't happen is, is not important. But the story is that after the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks uh, seized power and they smashed the the old state and they replaced yeah. it with a state of the people 
or, or maybe even a non-state, you might say, a sort of direct dem- democratic post-communist mm. so, post, uh, state. Uh, Rigby tells a very different story about what Lenin's government really looked like there. And this isn't, this isn't a hyper-politicized account. This is a very dispassionate historical view. And I think, he, I think Rigby has a, a pretty positive assessment of Lenin, I would say. He certainly finds yeah. him to be a very, you know, has a certain kind of ingenuity about him. Mm-hmm. He's uh, very brilliant and he takes a lot of risks and he understands large government bureaucracies and institutions and, and how, to, how to run things. But he tells a very different story about how that took place. Tell, give us a quick, yeah. um, a quick rundown and, and, and what this means to you in terms of yeah. our understanding of, of what dual power looks like in practice. Yeah, so what Rigby does, and you're right, he's not at all hostile to, and he's quite, he's quite impressed by Lenin. And Lenin was yeah. an impressive guy, you know, incredibly, yeah, so. incredibly talented um, person. But what emerges from Rigby's book, which is a sort of painstaking reconstruction from um, archival sources from Russia, of uh, he looks uh, looks through documents from the time and, and reconstructs the actual kind of institutional structure of Lenin's government, and the picture that Rigby builds up doesn't look at all like the apparent intention in, in the State and Revolution. So there's a sort of the, the the normal story, if you like, you know, from those sympathetic to the Bolsheviks is that what happened is that the Bolsheviks tried to create something approximating what Lenin describes in the State and Revolution, you know, uh, an ultra-democratic state based on the Soviets, which is no longer a state in the proper sense of the word because it's in the process of withering away. Uh, and it, all it needs to do is go through a necessary process of, you know, holding down the counter-revolution, training the people in uh, methods of admi- administration, involving people in running of their own communities and so on. And the story goes that it was, you know, it, it, it was sort of um, tragically snuffed out by the civil war, by the counter-revolution, by the isolation of Russia, by the failure of the revolution to spread to Germany. And the Bolsheviks are increasingly forced to centralise power and they degenerate and they become more and more militaristic and they make you know, virtues out of necessity. So you find Trotsky, for example, at the height of war communism, saying all sorts of horrible things about, you know, how militarising labour and how using really harsh dictatorial measures in factories it might seem horrible, but actually it's a step on the road to communism, you know, mm. and the people who don't understand this is because they are kind of stupid, liberal, petty bourgeois people or you can just soft and this kind of thing. And then along comes Stalin, and then the whole thing kind of reaches the apogee of uh, degeneration, if you like. That's not a contradiction to it. But the reality that um, Rigby shows is that from virtually day one of the revolution, what emerges is a state regime that's almost, in many ways, in terms of the central bureaucracy, the central structures, is almost identical to the provisional government structures and via that it's almost identical to the structures that prevail under Tsarism. So what the what Lenin does is he kind of sets up a structure based on the old government ministries. In fact, at first the so called so one of the things they do is they rename these ministries commissariats. 
and the ministers become commissars, people's commissars, right? So they re- they rename these structures, but they don't actually change the the, right. the actual substance of these structures. Mm-hmm. The first, the commissars operate from the Smolny Institute, where the Bolsheviks are based, and they gradually sort of make forays into the old government ministries, the old buildings, often accompanied by red red uh, red guards and gradually kind of assert their authority over the old staff and the old structures, the old buildings. And these become the commissariats. And Lenin gathers these commissars together into what's effectively a kind of a kind of semi-cabinet called Sovnakom, which is the Soviet of People's Commissars, which is which becomes effectively the, the kind of nucleus of institutional power in under Lenin. Uh, the term Soviet, by the way, is slightly misleading there because um, Soviets are Russian for council. doesn't necessarily mean Soviet in terms of proletarian democracy. Right. The, the, the czarist regime had Soviets. Uh, yes, exactly. It's just a Russian word that doesn't as, – as many times, you know, these words are Russian and, and uh, those who, who, who don't speak the language will presume that they have some kind of special jargon uh, kind of connotation, jargonish connotation, whereas they're just kind of more regular words, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, are other, there are other parallels, I think, in, in the Leninist sort of uh, canon that, that operate in the same way, like Vlast, for example, yeah. is, uh, is, is really not a special word necessarily but it does have a certain connotation but anyway yeah. i digress that's for the uh the soviet heads out there the historical uh, nerds but anyway you're right yeah so so effectively they you know in the czarist regimes that they were ministers under the sort of bolshevik government uh, they lenin's government they became commissars and uh, they took on the the functions of any government agriculture the military uh, trotsky was the, was the commissar of foreign affairs uh, he would have been in in the you know uh, the foreign minister or the department, uh, the secretary of state in the United States, yeah. which is kind of, it's almost kind of cute to think of Trotsky as the, you know, as this, as the uh, secretary of state or something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although he never turned up to meetings, apparently. Yeah, yeah, apparently, apparently he didn't turn up to meetings, but it's just kind of like uh, it has a certain kind of like uh, banality to it. You know, it's just kind Mm -hmm. of like uh, because we imagine these people as engaged in this in this very um, exceptional uh, revolutionary experiment. But in in reality, in the first couple of years, uh, the first several years, even they were engaged in in the same kind of statecraft that that any any government uh, or ministry should needs to be engaged in. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, one of the kind of marks of the kind of amazing historical figure of Lenin, in a way, is the way he moves seamlessly from being the sort of great sort of, um, kind of artist of, of revolution, kind of romantic, um, very, you know, kind of very sensitive kind of maestro of trying to coalesce these different forces and, and sort of, you know, channel them towards a particular objective. He moves from that to being, to becoming the consummate bureaucrat. And in fact, in fact, spends a lot of his time before he finally dies chairing meetings uh, and doing things like trying to keep people uh, at meetings just to speak within three minutes and not rabbit, rabbit on, trying to keep agenda items down to less than 16 <laughs> items, things like that. <laughs> Setting up new subcommittees to deal with um, routine matters. So one of the, one of the first things that, that Sovnacom does is it realises it's got so much fucking bureaucracy that so many of their ministers are not turning up to meetings, that they need to get rid of a lot of the business that's snarling things up because they're staying up until, in the Smolny Institute, they're staying up until 2, 3, 4 in the morning just getting through the agenda. Uh, 
Um, After a day of, you know, being in the commissariats, they then go back to Smolny and sit in Sovnacom meetings. So he sets up something called a little Sovnacom, which is to kind of be like a a kind of screening standing committee uh, that tries to take away the lesser items to get keep them off Sovnacom's agenda. And interesting, that's, that's something that Rigby says is probably something they got from the old Tsarist officials who were co-opted into the new Soviet government, you know, because that's exactly the structure that the Tsarist government had. It had its council of ministers and then a little standing sub, little council of ministers who dealt with these problems. And that's a sort of, um, a kind of epitomises the process going on here. The, the, the thing that emerges from Rigby's story is that the structure of Lenin's state was not absolutely identical, but in its major features, its processes, um, its, its uh, institutional links, its overall shape, it's almost identical to previous governmental structure. And so what flows kind of from, from this reality is that the idea that the old state, the old state apparatuses were smashed and replaced with something completely new is just not true. What happened is that the old in the old ministries and often, you know, completely the old the, the, the existing staff were absorbed into a new government where the sort of there was there's a kind of change over the top, if you like. And of course they've got very different intentions and their policies are very, very different to the provisional government, so it's the Zaris government. But in terms of structures and procedures and the way it operates, it looks like there's much more continuity than there was anything approaching some sort of absolute smashing of the bourgeois state. Of course, there are these, these parallel structures as well. There are Soviets, and there's the Congress of Soviets. And at the top of that is the Central Executive Committee, which is kind of does the day-to-day running of, because the, the Congress is hundreds of people, and there's no way that they can, you know, kind of administer things on a day-to-day basis. So they elect a, uh, uh, some, some delegates to kind of make the day-to-day decisions. And the initial decree um, of the new government, which says something about, it tries to work out its new structures, it says that the commissariats have got to be immersed in the mass organisations. They've got to be immersed in the revolutionary mass organisations of people. So there's some sense in which the commissariats should be democratised and somehow organically linked with the Soviets. And what what they they appear to be doing formally in terms of what they're announcing is that the sovereign body and this new regime is actually the CEC, the, the, the Central Executive Committee of the Congress of Soviets. So the, the, the kind of sovereign power of the new regime is the Soviets, with Sovnarkom, uh, Lenin's committee, acting as a kind of executive administrative arm, dealing with day-to-day business, you know, kind of uh, sorting things out. But it, almost as if that's um, a temporary structure. It's part, it's part of the apparatus that is going to wither away, uh, leaving the, the Soviets as the slightly you know, longer-lasting institutions. But that's how it formally looked. In reality, actually, there's very little evidence that the commissariats are immersed in the mass organisations of the working people. There's very little evidence that the CEC or the Congress had any influence really over Sovnacom. It's formally given the power to approve appointments to the commissariats. You know, they should vote on who they want to be the, the minister of this and the minister of that. In reality, that doesn't happen. And Lenin actively subordinates the CEC and seems to be quite hostile to it in many ways because 
He appears to to have a fear of or a hostility towards what he calls anarcho syndicalism and a kind of sectionalist tendency. He thinks that the Soviets are undisciplined. They'll tend to fragment. Uh, they'll tend to be disputatious. And what you really need is a some you know body of people who get things done. Um, yeah. and who, who are the heirs of the true sort of legacy of Marx they're, you know they've got the they understand Marx they understand the science of Marxism and so on and it's hard not to see a certain I don't know a certain cynicism there this, this is before the, the civil war sets in by the way you know some people say that the centralization of the state under Lenin was entirely because they the plans to turn Russia into something like a commune state were derailed by, you know, the intervention and the white armies and so on. But this happens long before the Civil War really sets in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does look like Lenin really does intend to sideline the Soviets and to make them, if not ornaments, and they do have a lot of power at local level, but they're certainly subordinated to the bureaucracy, uh, the central apparatuses of government. And that central bureaucracy is the apparatus that looks almost identical to the Tsarist state, you know, that state which which hasn't been smashed at all. Right. And I, I just, I would like to emphasize just as, as maybe an aside or a support or something like that, that like, I get it. Lenin's impulse there. I mean, I get, I get it. Like if, if anyone has ever found themselves in a leadership position of a large and unwieldy and fractious organization, they will understand exactly why Lenin sort of had what we, we what we might call an elitist kind of impulse to sort of direct the business of statecraft and governance as against these kind of warring factions within the Soviets who who were prepared to kind of burn the whole thing down if if things didn't go according to plan or, or whatever because at the, at the end of the day. An organization, a state, an institution has a certain kind of mission and the show has to go on, you know, in, in a kind of cynical, yeah, albeit cynical sort of way, regardless of the kind of shenanigans and the, and the fights that are happening to, at the level of the base. Um, and and I, I'm not proud to say that. That's not something that I you know, sort of like puff out my chest and make a virtue of. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making a virtue of a, of a kind of elitist uh, orientation to power, but this is the kind of pitfall and contradiction that's inherent, that's internal to 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 power, to to uh, you know, to to guiding and marshalling the energies of large groups of people. Mm. Um, you can't avoid this by by just having the right principles and, and operating under the, under the under the right slogans. Like these are built in, in in many in many ways. So so in case, you know, folks just think that what we're trying to do here is just slander Lenin as this, you know, this authoritarian, as this cynic, as this this centralizer of power, this elitist or whatever, I'm certainly not. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Ed, but uh but I don't know what what do you make of that consideration? It's almost like, you know, <laughs> Lenin is taking under his own Lenin is taking under his own power this kind of uh, this this role of the what we would now call the relative autonomy of the state. Mm. Well, he's nothing if not not a pragmatist, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 actually hard to see what he could have done otherwise in practice. And I, I guess one of the lessons that can be drawn from this is the necessity of some form of kind of bureaucracy, the necessity of some form of centralization of political power, uh, the necessity of some form of what we might call a state. You know, even in post-revolutionary situation. 
that you can't move immediately to, if, if at all, to the sort of decomposition of centralised power and the sort of devolution of power to grassroots organs. And this is something I think that Ralph Miliband talks about quite lucidly in his critique of the state and revolution, which is that there's always a necessary tension between what he calls direction and necessity of direction and, and democracy. And there's always a necessary tension between giving people power on the one hand, and also making sure that what you don't get is total chaos. You know, you need you need to have some kind of mechanism for aggregating opinion, interests, for, for forming some kind of consensus, if you like, uh, uh, or majority consensus, and then imposing that, hopefully through some kind of um, agreement, through some democratic means. But you can't ever get beyond that tension. And so that perhaps what Marx and Engels weren't very good at was thinking through the problems of what they called the public power that they thought would exist under communism. You know, there's something, they, they yeah. talk about something yeah. vague that will exist even under communism, the necessity of some kind of public power, but that wouldn't, so it wouldn't be a state in the proper sense of the word. And they're a little bit yeah. slippery about, you know, in what way is this not a state? Well, it's not a state because it's not a class state. A state is by, by definition a class state and every class society has its own state and every state is inherently the state of the dominant class but the public power because it operates in communism there's no classes under communism it can't be a class state so it can't be a state it's something else but it's it's a very slippery concept and something i don't think they ever convincingly kind of got to the bottom of and certainly I, t- I think that Lenin takes on that legacy, you know, that sort of ambiguous legacy of Marx and Engels and tries to square this circle all the time of wanting a commune, non-state, but also wanting to centralise power it, because of the necessity of a period of the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, you, you need to have a, some sort of way of holding down the enemies of the revolution while also you disintegrate the old state apparatus. And I think the way he resolves that dilemma, squares that circle, is really through a form of uh, what you've called before, Adam, another situation kind of magical thinking. You know, it's yeah. a sort of it's a sort of rhetorical solution to the problem, which isn't really a solution. And I think that in a way, that's what he's doing in the state and revolution is he's trying to square a circle, and he doesn't quite do it. Does that make sense? Absolutely right, and it's not about vindicating or denigrating the man or his actions. It's about understanding the challenges he and his and his comrades faced, and, and thinking through you know how they handled it and and what the implications were in in, in, the, in terms of how they how they did handle it. The main purpose of the show is to outline kind of like what remains of this revolutionary socialist dual power kind of approach today. And, and, you know, I think, spoiler alert, I think the answer is not much, <laughs> to put it to put it uh, quite uh, glibly. Uh, and I hope we'll fill that out and justify that to the skeptics uh, as we as we move on. I think we can maybe be a bit too categorical about it. I mean, my, my feeling is there's a kernel of truth here, which is that if you look at and a very, very substantial one, actually, if you look at any real upsurge in left wing struggle where things get brought to the brink of power, you do see. Uh, a confrontation in certain forms. I'm not sure it's a kind of uh, an absolute confrontation, but you you do see this sort of uh, tension, at least, between the institutions of the existing state and the particular repressive apparatuses 
and some form of insurgent power among the people, right? So you, you so that sort of thing occurs historically in various situations. Um, you know, think about Germany in the, the revolutionary situation of the uh, First World War. Uh, think about Portugal when the dictatorship was overthrown. Think about Chile under Allende. Right, you get a sort of a, a relationship, a sort of slight a tension between state apparatuses and organs of mass democracy. In that, in that case, the cordon, the cordons, and also to some extent in Greece. You know what you get at the height of the social mobilisations is you get right cops beating people up in um, in the square in, in Athens, uh, and perhaps even similarly, more you know in um, uh, in Egypt, you get a confrontation between the repressive apparatuses and the the people. They don't all follow that logic of. February, November 1917, that, that sort of situation of dual power, if you like, in those other examples, was never a carbon copy of what happened in Russia. And often it was only a sort of echo of that sort of relationship. I mean, think in particular about the Allende experience in Chile from 1970 to 1973. What you get is the election of a radical left-wing government which in itself is the stimulus for the creation of organs of popular power, which are expressly set up to defend the Allende's government, right? And of course, there's a, there's, it's not a completely harmonious relationship because Allende is continually under pressure to, to repress workers who are taken over their factories and is continually under pressure to disarm sort of various forms of workers' militias that spring up to defend themselves from fascist gangs and things like that. So it's not a harmonious relationship, but it's not a totally antagonistic one either. And it, it seems to me to show that there is something to that dynamic of, of struggle, which leads to a kind of polarisation, which leads to something like two sites of legitimacy, which are not wholly comfortable with each other, you know, the, the existing legitimate state and the new institutions of power, which are de facto a challenge to that legitimacy in some ways. But it's not clear to me that those institutions of dual powers will always appear, that they can somehow spring out of nothing, that they follow some kind of plot, or that they necessarily come into direct violent confrontation on, on, on block, you know, between the, the, the people's organs, if you like, on the one hand, and state right, organs right. on the other. I just don't think it's as neat as that. Uh, and so that's where I'm with someone, I guess we'll talk about him a bit later, is with Polansis is vision of such as it is kind of vague vision but very very um yeah. fruitful and, and uh, interesting one of this sort of articulation uh between a movement within the state and a movement outside yeah, yeah. let's you know let's move to that now um let's move to that now we we've, we're um we're, we're kind of getting a lot up there in time the piece I think that you're referring to most explicitly is in the Palancis Reader, which I have recommended to many, many listeners uh, of the show, uh, both, both uh, you know, the folks who have reached out to me asking for more information, more readings on Palancis and state theory. I think it's a fantastic volume and collection. But in the very end, at the very back of that volume, there is an interview with a French fourth internationalist by the name of um, Henri Weber. 
uh, it's really gets characterized as an interview. It's really a debate and it's a fantastic and important debate, particularly in the context of the question that we're trying to take up today on this episode is, uh, you know, what, what's, what remains of revolutionary socialism and, and where are the holes and the pitfalls and the contradictions and what you're seeing in this interview is a debate between a revolutionary socialist and between Poulances, who is something like what, what you know, Ed, you would call a, a left Euro-communist, this sort of inside-outside democratic socialist, you know, democratic transition to socialism um, that, that, that we're trying to sort of develop here on the show. I mean, you can tell it's inchoate because we don't even have a fucking name for it. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's step one. Uh, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Ed, you'll have to do that in your book. You have to name this thing. It's on you. It's on you. I've been trying to do. Yeah, I've been trying this for a year, and I've failed idea. multiple times. Yeah. But uh, you know, it, it, if you fail, be sure to fail out in the open, so <laughs> you know no one ever has to hold you accountable for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there, there are historical antecedents for this. You know, so there's a there's a centrist current in yeah. the Second International, exemplified particularly by Kautsky. Uh, but the trouble is that the. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Kautsky for various reasons, but. Uh, the trouble with centrism as a term is that it's it's been it's all it's already been claimed um, by the enemies of centrism. It's, it's now a term of, of it became a term of insult under Trotsky. Yeah. So if you're a centrist, you know it means you're a vacillating, petty bourgeois, etc., etc. Someone doesn't really understand what Marx really meant. So and that's the problem with drawing on those old terms is that they've often right, got right. a lot of baggage. So this interview is really brilliant because you're seeing these kind of positions play out. The interview was uh, in around, I think, 1977 or thereabouts. That's when it was published. And so it's, it's a far more contemporary case mm. of some, an adherent of dual power, a sort of modified contemporary version of dual power going up against a mind like Palancis. And some, some of the central sort of critiques that mm. Palancis has of Weber and vice versa are incredibly illustrative for the kinds of debates that are internal to the left right now. And so what the way that Weber characterizes, I would say, the, the dual power is a form of kind of contra state. And the, the most fascinating, one of the more fascinating uh, yes. aspects of that exchange is when Henri Weber takes Palancis to task and says, yeah, but what, what you're saying is not unique. We revolutionary socialists also believe that institutions and electoral bodies are important and we engage in them, uh, you know, whenever, whenever possible. But Palancis comes back and, and responds, yes, you, you engage in them in a way in which would then give you leverage to besiege the state at the appointed moment, at the appointed time when the dual power apparatus, the contra state, the worker state can sort of assault the bourgeois state. And the members that you have placed inside of the institutions will sort of help launch that attack in essence. And so even insofar as these revolutionary mm -hmm. socialists engage in state institutions, they're still sort of uh, have this vision that their aim is to attack it from the outside, to besiege it, to smash it, as it were. What do you make of this contemporary uh, manifestation of dual power? How, how has it been altered throughout the ages? And, and where does it kind of fall apart? Well, I, I agree with you that that, that yeah. debate between, I'm going to call him Weber as well, Weber and uh, Palancis is really fascinating. And I, I think it goes to the heart of a lot of these these issues that are left unresolved. And, I mean, essentially what Polanzas is saying is drawing on 
what he was writing at the time, State Pounds uh, Socialism, in his final book, before he defenestrated himself, is the, the idea that the, the state is not a thing. You know, the state is not... It's not, it's not, he calls it, he, he, he talks about the Leninist conception of dual powers as, as basing mm-hmm. its strategy on, on the conception of the fortress state, which is a thing mm-hmm. which, which you can remain totally external to and which you can kind of surround and besiege like a medieval army before kind of undermining it and, and burning it to the ground. And, you know, uh, and that's, that's the way that you overthrow bourgeois power. But what um, Pulantzis points out is that in fact that's not what the state is at all the state isn't uh it's not a thing um it's a set of relationships it has a certain institutional materiality it has certain apparatuses attached to it but it's not a coherent singular thing it's not a subject it doesn't have a point of view it doesn't have one set of you know um one one outlook on things what, what is it is uh you know even within state apparatuses you get turf wars between different departments you get people with different ideological predispositions you know different sort of people from different parties elected uh you get um, all sorts of differences within the state all sorts of conflicts within the state all sorts of snarl ups and sort of inefficiencies and duplications within the state and beyond that state power itself which the state apparatuses sort of concretize is a social relation so the state, in terms of state power, for, for Polanzas, condenses kind of the prevailing and ever-shifting balance of class forces in society. And it's reflected in state policy, in the way in which the state needs to react to, you know, various challenges, to various demands from different sort of uh, interest groups, etc., different class forces. And in that sense, you never outside of the state, every social movement, every kind of uh, struggle, any kind of political economic struggle is always already articulated Mm -hmm. uh, within the field of state power. So it makes no sense. It's just a conceptual error to think like Henri Weber, that you can somehow stay independent of the state and attack it from outside. Uh, because that's not that's not just not what the state is. I mean, one one way of thinking about it is, Polanski often makes this analogy, is to think about the state in the same way that we have to think about capital. So, so capital there are there are physical forms. There's money, there's banknotes, but that's not capital. That's not the that's not the you know what capital is in in you know in in, in total. What is capital? Is capital, you know, can you see it? Is it, is it a thing that you can definitely possess in your hand? Um, yes and no. You know, you can hold money, but money, what is money? It's just, uh, it's just sort of objects. What, what, what makes money money is the sort of social relations that it embodies and the kind of collective fictions that we build up around it and live in our daily life, you know, that, that invest this thing well, these things with a with a sort of some kind of int- what's apparently an intrinsic power, but it's not. What, it, what, what it's actually expressed is relations between people, uh, relations of exploitation, you know, r- relationships um, articulated with uh, our, our sort of place in terms of the of uh, the, the relations of production. So it's the same with the state. You know, it's um, 
it's something much more complex than an object. It's 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 not a a fortress that stands on a hill somewhere that's totally impervious to the to the ordinary people, like we're kind of peasants with torches outside and pitchforks, sort of screaming at the state, stop oppressing me. That's not what the state is. State the state is already always already mm. kind of implicated in views our daily life, our practices, and we reproduce the state. Let's 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 spin the ne- the next fifteen to this A side and move into the B side by talking about uh, this distinction. I think that revolutionary socialism makes uh, with this kind of final rupture, this ma- this final smashing of the state, and what Polancis uh, sort of takes Henri Weber to task on at one point yeah. is he sort of says. Well, you revolutionary socialists nowadays understand and admittedly are playing something of a long game where there will be hopefully a series of many ruptures that will then lead to this grand rupture, per se. And Palanza sort of says, well, how is that any different than, than what we're doing, what I'm doing, uh, what I'm proposing, which you slander as incrementalism? So maybe spell out what what is incrementalism, what is the theory of rupture, and and how is there in practice not a whole lot of space between them in a certain kind of sense. Well, that goes right to the heart, I think, of the the problem of socialist strategy. So it seems to me there there are two unconvincing answers to the problem of capitalist power and how you might seek to undermine it. And the first is the sort of classic reformist, gradualist strategy, which is this idea that you can kind of gradually encroach on capitalist prerogatives, but do so in a way that, you know, in which there's there's not really any crisis, the whole thing goes very smoothly, the capitalists agree to sort of gradually have their power eroded, but somehow they, for some reason, keep on investing. <laughs> they, they play their part as as in they expropriating to invest, themselves. Right, so they keep the economy <laughs> going. There's, yeah. Absolutely. They just kind of kind of classically agree to their own kind of abolition as a class, which of course is is just theoretically absurd and practically absurd. But the other I think on the other end, um, there's an equal absurdity, which is this idea that you, you can sort of deal with the problem of capitalist power once and for all in one fell swoop, right? What you need to do is surround that fortress and raise it to the ground and problem solved. Yeah, you just you sort of surround the central locus of capitalist power, which is the state. And once you've dealt with that, um, it's all sort of more or less plain sailing because you've got the levers of power in your hands and you can then implement the socialisation of the economy. But that's clearly not really, seems to me anyway, it's not a particularly feasible strategy. And I think that's, that's what Leninism in, in, often boils down to. It's that idea that if you seize political power, right, you still seize the state, then somehow you gain control over the levers of power that will allow you to enact something like kind of weirdly a gradualist transition to socialism, where you gradually socialise the economy because you've got the, the political the levers of political power in your hand. But what that also does is it ends up not taking um doesn't take capitalist power seriously because capitalist power in as much as the state you know kind of condenses is the is the kind of locus point of the, the core site of power in, in in capitalist society it's not the only site of power and it seems to me that one of the reasons why the capitalist state is precisely a capitalist state is because the the capitalist economy 
um, absolutely relies on um, capitalist investment. It relies on private investment. If there's no private investment, then, you know, accumulation slows down, growth slows down, there's all sorts of economic problems. And interestingly, this is precisely the problem that Lenin and his... Uh, the Soviet government ran into in the first few months and, and weeks of uh, of the revolution. Uh, it's not often kind of there in the the familiar narratives of the Russian Revolution, but what Lenin's conception of the transition was is that they would the the, the, the workers and the peasants would take power politically, so by by taking the, the levers of political power out of the hands of the bourgeoisie, and then they would run a still predominantly capitalist economy in a phase that's, that, that Lenin called state capitalism, which is essentially a, for, a form of heavily regulated capitalism in which there wouldn't actually be very much expropriation of big capital. And he expected the big industrialists to keep on investing under a Soviet government, right? And, and they seemed to be quite surprised, actually, that the big capitalists weren't particularly interested, you know, in ploughing their investment uh, into industries that were marked for eventual takeover by the Soviet government in the name of the people. You know, why would they? Why would they Why would they spend all that money on something that they're probably not going to get back? And so there's the same problem that seems to me emerges in that sort of Leninist strategy that, that, that emerges in terms of the reformist strategy, which is that you don't take the power of capital itself seriously as a, as a sort of economic form of power. And it seems to me that the the necessity of rupture, of some form of rupture, of some forms of ruptures, right, uh, is that at some point in the process of transition to socialism, you're going to need to take capital away from the capitalists, right? This should be obvious, but it's often, sometimes it's not obvious that you need to take away that veto power that capital has over um, social change, and the veto power it has is it can say, we don't like this policy, we don't like the way things are going, so we're going to not invest. We're going to organise a capital strike, or there's going to be a flight of capital, uh, or we're, we're going to let our firms run down, or we're going to try to, to move our operations overseas. It does suggest that there will, there will be a moment of, and it, it's only one big moment, but there will certainly be the, the period of transition and that period of contestation between still existing capitalist power and the rising socialist power, if you like, yeah, will be a period of economic crisis. It will be a period of turmoil. It will be a period of uh, unrest, of, of uncertainty. And at some point, there's going to need to be something like the nationalisation of the major means of production, right? It's taking into, into, into public ownership the major productive forces, including the banks, including capital. Now, the problem then is, well, how do you stop that from simply becoming a form of statism? You know, we don't want the state running the economy from top top down. You want people to run their own firms. You want this sort of, you know, this, this, you want economic democracy. So that process of rupture would have to be accompanied by the emergence of uh, forms of economic democracy, the emergence of sort of democratic capacity building process amongst people where they're actually able to take on 
the management of the economy themselves through some kind of process of socialization that's going to be a messy process it's not going to be smooth but that it seems to me uh is is a is a necessity so but that doesn't necessarily mean that we we end up right, in right. the kind of classical revolution exactly so i was going to suggest there is that that's the economic contradiction the political contradiction to seizing power in this sort of like uh uh, you know, swift manner is that is that uh, it's the one faced by the Bolsheviks. It's the one faced in places like China and the uh, in Cambodia and in Cuba and other places like that. And some of those experiments are more laudable than others. Uh, I don't know many folks, not not my listeners certainly, who are going to champion Cambodia among them. But you know, Cuba had its aspects. Uh, China even had its aspect. All the right, whatever. But but they're they're faced with the central problem. There is what do you do with with political dissent? What do you do? Do you, do you clamp down on you know uh, on heterodoxy in in the realm of of politics? Do you clamp down on oppositional political parties? Do you clamp down on oppositional factions within the socialist or communist party? And and a lot of governments in reality have done that because when you face a kind of economic crisis, it's accompanied by a political crisis. And as Lenin sort of demonstrated in 1917 and 18 and 19, you need to have a kind of unity and resolve and purpose uh, to get yourself through the crisis, which in practice means that some voices ultimately have to be ignored. And if you don't have means uh, of, of representative democracy and certain kind of institutional found, you know, institutional foundations for mediating dissent and ensuring civil liberties and all of these types of things, then you're in real trouble. And now we're, at, we're, we're in the midst of the debate that happened between Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, so spell that out for us, for folks who don't know, uh, yeah. may not even have any understanding of the fact that, that Luxembourg and Lenin uh, were at odds, uh, at, uh, you know, when it came to a very crucial question. Um, and, and, and talk to us about how that relates uh, today, because just to, to signal ahead, you raise a really interesting point. When you start to when you start to tease out these contradictions of dual power, uh, what emerges uh, in the process of handling those contradictions in practice is something pretty close to what we're advocating, <laughs> right? It's uh, when you when you rip away the, mm. the ideology uh, in practice, what you get is something that looks a whole lot like this kind of inside-outside strategy where we sort of maintain a certain kind of democratic road to socialism that will require a series of ruptures, but a, a, a transformation of the state from the inside, um, facilitated by by forces on the outside, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that sort of um, the classic critique of... Uh, Bolshevik practice by Luxembourg. I mean, clearly, we, we can't we can't <laughs> right. claim Rosa Luxembourg yeah. from the inside outside. Yeah, 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 for she sure. Was, for sure. Uh, very opposed to any form of parliamentary um, socialism sure, and kind of sure. very hostile to the bourgeois state. So, yeah, to be clear there, but she she was bang on the money in terms of her critique of um, the practice of the Bolsheviks after the revolution, where was this kind of an inexorable process of of clamping down. Um, on various sorts of enemies of the people, and, and that's the, the kind of this, the range of people who became enemies of the people, you know, kind of inexorably grew and came to encompass mm -hmm. other socialists, mm -hmm. you know, as much as the, as much as the white armies. Um, 
And her critique of, of uh, the Bolsheviks was that um, she felt that um, to, to, to clamp down on civil liberties, political liberties, uh, to clamp down, this is very strong, the freedom of the press, for example, not, not in the kind of the bourgeois sense of de- defending the, you know, the big media moguls, but in terms of allowing different factions and political tendencies to have access to the printing press, for example, to be able to allow to distribute their literature. But her critique of the oppressive measures that the Bolsheviks took against um, not just the uh, people they um, regarded as the, the bourgeoisie. So first of all, the, the, the franchise was restricted um, to, to the working class. There was a kind of weighted voting system in the Soviets as well, where peasant Soviets, peasant votes essentially counted for less than those of the open proletariat. Because Lenin said, you know, the proletariat are the powerhouse of the revolution. We've got to make sure that because they're outnumbered by peasants, we need to make sure that their votes count for more than the peasant vote. But but also uh, there's a, a process of uh, making into enemies other socialist groups. So the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries. Um, and to be fair, the SRs do join the counter-revolution. You know, they, they don't make it easy on themselves. Uh, the Mensheviks don't so much, interestingly. They don't, they don't really have anything to do with the whites, um, but they're still repressed. Uh, and, and eventually the left SRs are initially... Um, allies of the Bolsheviks, and they even have some places in Sovnarkom, a few ministers, and Lenin's never very, clear, very keen on it, but he kind of allows it. Um, and they're, they're all repressed uh, and clamped down on. And Luxembourg's criticism of this is that it stupefies the masses. Right? So if you don't allow people to debate, you don't allow differences of opinion, you don't allow uh, freedom of circulation of opinion in, in the press and so on, um, that the masses become... Um, they lose their access to information. They're no longer active agents in the process of their own liberation. They're just like cannon fodder for the party which knows best. Um, and I think that that tendency towards um, the one-party state in Russia um, is there from the beginning. You know, in, in terms of in terms of Lenin's um, conception of communism and in terms of his conception of the role of the party as somehow interpreting the real interests of the people uh which are kind of singular you know there's only one interest in the bolsheviks no so so why do you need more than one socialist why do you need more than one vanguard party of the people you know if the, the class corresponds to the bolsheviks then what the bolsheviks do corresponds to the interests of the class uh yeah, well, I should mention, you know, Rigby opens up the preface in his in his book, uh, Lenin's Government here. I mean, we forget about this. We think that this is all just kind of theory and stuff. But I mean, you know, the USSR was a state. Uh, they had a constitution. And, you know, Rigby uh, opens the book by quoting the constitution mm. of the USSR, which describes the Communist Party as, quote, the leading and directing force of Soviet society and the nucleus of its political system of all state organizations and all voluntary organizations, end quote. And Rigby says, in practical institutional terms, this means the superordination of the executive bodies of the party over those of the state at the center in the constituent republics and right down to the lowest level of local government. So effectively, you know, in, 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 in modern, quote, bourgeois states, we have the institutions which stand above political parties, and political activity, 
and the USSR, the, the Constitution, the party stood over top of the institutions. And I mean, that has a real, that has a real yeah. uh, practical, you know, this has real practical implications for what kind of society emerges and what kind of freedoms and mm-hmm. democratic uh, orientations resolve, as you rightly pointed to. I mean, it, it's, it's on the one hand tragic, but not at all shocking that most of the members of, of mm-hmm. the uh, Sovnarkom, uh, the original uh, commissars, uh, end up shot in uh you know in sm- smelly basements uh over the course of the red terror uh you know or or thereafter in this in the show trials you know under stalin um because there are, when when you put the party at the head of institutions um it 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 doesn't leave much of a safe space <laughs> safe space for uh things like dissent mm. and you know um other types of activities, but but anyway, I've I've gone on far enough, far long, far enough for that. What do you, I mean? What do you make of that kind of uh, practical orientation of the party standing over the institutions rather than the institutions standing over the party? Yeah, that, that's, in some ways, that's what that's a process that Rigby traces in that book, isn't isn't it? So interestingly, Lenin never holds an official position in the Bolshevik and uh, like the Communist Party. He's um, very much involved with the institutions of government. Telling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it do, it does seem to be uh, the case that in when he went, he goes through his kind of dark night of the soul in 1922, and he kind of realizes that there's a, a process of bureaucratization happening in the Soviet regime. And he can't quite work out why it is, um, and he does his best to try to prevent the drift of power away from Sovnarkom and the government ministry, the commissariat. Uh, to, to the party, to the Politburo and the Org Bureau and the, the Central Committee. And he, he just doesn't have the strength to do it because he's very ill by, by that time. And so he kind of sees this coming, but he sees it coming too late. Uh, and, the, and in a way, that one of the tragedies of Lenin is the way in which he himself sets this process in motion. Um, and there's that famous um, remark from Victor Serge, isn't there, on the potentialities of the Russian Revolution, the kind of anarchist kind of he joined uh, Bolshevik, didn't he? He became kind of remained semi-critical. And when, when asked about whether Stalinism uh, was inevitable, he'd always say that the seeds of Stalinism were present from the beginning, but it doesn't mean that the, the, the kind of, you know, these were the only seeds that were present. It wasn't, it wasn't inexorable from the start. And that's often taken to kind of um, exonerate uh, the Bolsheviks. And um, often the kind of the established narrative of present-day Leninists is that, you know, the Bolsheviks meant well, but things went badly. And the kind of exigencies of civil war and the kind of intolerable suffering and hardship that people were going through uh, tragically degenerated the revolution and, you know, kind of twisted it and you end up with Stalin. Um, but what's Serge, what the other half of what Serge is saying is also important to bear in mind is that the, the seeds of Stalinism were present in Leninism. You know, it, it wasn't some kind of um, infection from outside that kind of, or some kind of parasite that kind of turned it into something grotesque. Um, those seeds were present, and I think you can see um, it in the, in the ease with which people like Lenin and Trotsky, for example. Switch into ultra authoritarian pronouncements, you know, at the, the height of war communism, particularly. Um, although, interestingly, the, the Bolshevik Party, the Communist Party, becomes much more intolerant in under NEP, under the new economic policy, 
than it does on, it is under war communism, which is kind of a weird paradox. But anyway, they 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 move all too easily into positions of saying things like there's no contradiction between uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, and the dictatorship of one person. And, uh, the, and Trotsky says things like it's the duty of the of the party. Uh, to maintain its sort of, you know, to maintain its line, even in the face of the temporary vacillations of the working class. So the working class can be wrong sometimes about its own interests, and it's the party that knows best. Um, the ease with which um, Lenin moves to uh, economic one-man one management in the nationalised factories, the ease with which he uh, simply um, sidelines the factory committees and workers' control in the factories suggests that it wasn't just a sort of a case of, you know, virtuous individuals who were tragically, you know, perverted by, you know, unbelievable pressures of hardship. It, that, that there was also something wrong about their outlook from the beginning, which eased that path towards what became Stalinism. That's my view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to reiterate, I mean, I've said this earlier, and I think and I, and we, I think you agree with me here on this now, and, and is that you know this is not to say that Lenin was a bad guy, right? That, that, that's not the point of all of this, right? Like that would just be a, such a silly, uh, you know, such no. a silly, cheap kind of takeaway here um, in some senses. But anyway, but you see what I'm getting at. This is not about defending Lenin or about characterizing his his uh, abysmal and conservative social views. It's about understanding the position that managers of any state are put in when things break down. And what I'd like to ultimately get to at the end of this episode, which needs to come sooner rather than later, unfortunately, we're hitting at the hour and a half mark, is that uh, what I'd like to get to is that as socialists who seriously want to affect a socialist transition, the last thing that we should ever hope for is this, is this kind of breakdown, you know, that, that it, it puts you in a place where you, I'm not going to say you have to, you don't have to do anything, uh, but you are potentially put in a place where you have to, where, where, where you are pressured, where there are certain imperatives to make decisions that none of us would want to make. And so, you know, coming around to the, the thesis of the episode, and I think the 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 the, the, the final sort of uh, clarion call, if you will, that I like to leave folks with is that like the notion of dual power, I think, falls apart not only historically and theoretically, but just strategically. It's kind of like be careful what you wish for; you might you just might get it. And what does that leave us with? Does that just leave us with this kind of uh, you know? slow and steady and kind of boring and 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 uh uh failure prone kind of inside outside democratic road to socialism i would i would say it does i would say it does that's all we have uh there i think this idea that there are i put this to you ed you know i always say this people ask me like well, what tendency do you think you're from or you you belong to adam and i always say like i that doesn't that question doesn't make sense to me anymore um, I mean, you can, you can sort of imagine yourself to be of this tendency or that tendency, but in, in terms of someone who just wants to see a socialist transition, I mean, there's only one capitalist state. That is my terrain of struggle. Um, I can imagine myself, I can frame it in a way that where I'm a libertarian socialist. No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, this kind of socialist. I'm a, that kind of communist. Um, 
But I'm not sure that that matters very much because the only thing that matters is what's actually in front of us, the actual terrain, the actual roadmap that we that we that we that sort of dictates our, our, our activities and our and our strategies. Um, what do you what do you make of that kind of claim? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always, always very, very suspicious of people who come up to you and the first thing they say is they announce what they're, what they are, what's my label. You know, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian communist, or I'm, a, I'm this, or I'm that, because I always think, well, are you really? And isn't this just a sort of posture you're adopting? Isn't this just uh, your identity that you're projecting? Right. So, so it's not really very interesting to me um, the labels that people put on themselves. Um, but I think, um, I mean, what I'm coming back to again is, is that debate between Faber and Palancis. Um, and what, what really stands out to me about that interview is the way that Palancis quite fearlessly, uh, says that he doesn't know the answer to certain questions. He's not sure. You know, Faber's saying, well, what do you mean? What does, what does a rupture look like? What, what is it? What, and and Palancis says, well, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, um, well, I don't know. Uh, but you don't know either. We can't possibly know. Um, and there's, there's, there's a real, a real, I mean, there's something very obvious about that, isn't there? But And yet it's, it sounds very wise <laughs> compared to the, the air of absolute certainty that a lot of people seem to have, particularly from very, you know, the sort of Trotskyist tradition, where they seem to be absolutely sure that they've got the main, you know, that the, the main, Problems were solved 100 years ago by Lenin and Trotsky, and all that remains is to kind of put those those ideas into operation. You know, um, a bit like a cargo cult. Uh, you know, where the sort of uh, people uh, think that if you, you perform certain rituals and dress in a certain way and sort of encant various slogans, then bounty will descend from heaven. It's almost the same kind of thing with this revolutionary strategy. You know, if we kind of excuse me, adopt the right line and we get the right name for ourselves and we expel the right people, then a rev- you know, the dual power situation will fall from the skies because we'll have created the conditions for its manifestation uh, you know, on, on this world. Um, and I think in the end we're left with a tentative, exploratory, uh, experimental strategy um, a strategy that Andrew Collier, I think I might have mentioned last time we spoke briefly, but he 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 has, a, I think, a very, very interesting conception of Marxism and what he calls this, this, this going to annoy some people, but the methodical, uh, methodological, methodological conservatism of Marx. Um, and what he says is that Marx isn't interested in utopias. He's not interested in realising some ideal transcendent stra- uh, standard. Um, what he's interested in is the the real movement of things. You know what's actually happening, what are the actual balance of forces, what are the real potentialities that are inherent in the in the moment today. And that, I think that's that's got to be the way that we operate. Um, we can't deal with abstractions. We can't be imagining you know a, a dual power situation that will unfold in the same way that it did in, in Russia. We've got to start from where we are, and where we are is a very different moment, and it involves campaigning for immediate demands for things that will immediately make people's lives better that will immediately empower working class people that will immediately build up the democratic capacities and the confidence of working class people and seeing where that takes us and seeing how far you can push that process until you come up against 
insurmountable barriers. And hopefully by that point, you'll have you know, built up some sort of resources uh, in order to be able to solve those problems when they emerge, whether or not it's the need for some kind of ruptural strategy um, of, of, of uh, revolution or whether it's something else. But we can't know what that's going to be until we get there. Right. I mean, that, that's that's the difference. I think where the, this needle we're trying to thread this needle, as I, as I like to say, uh, is, is is that between this kind of uh, illusory historically and theoretically speaking, this illusory dual power uh, uh, rupture strategy on the one end and this kind of uh, social democratic incrementalism on the other end, where we slowly but surely in a linear fashion work towards a socialist society. Uh, what we what we have is a yeah. more kind of inside outside sort of uh, it's a it's at every phase of the game there are ruptures because that's what I think you know that that's what the strategy of non reformist reforms are really all is really all about it's about producing uh, new capacities and at each phase at each phase of the game it's not a stagist where first this then that then that like a pez dispenser if you will. It's at each phase there are new it's a it's a brand qualitatively new and distinctively different kind of uh, situation that you find yourself in because you have new capacities that were developed in the previous uh, previous phase mode, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, you know, attack, uh, whatever. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. if at the end of this non-reformist reform, uh, you know, we find ourselves with new capacities, new potentials, new resources inside and outside of the state, that was a little, that was a kind of a rupture of a sort that we are on a, a different kind of qualitative uh, uh, level that we can intensify uh, again, you know, because we have new resources to be even more bold and even more, uh, resolute and enhance and further the contradictions uh, of, of capitalist society at each point. And so not to get too philosophical here, but I think I really do think the kind of like the temp, the, our, our notion of temporality and our understanding of historicity itself, like really needs to kind of shift in order to think our way outside of this, uh, this, this silly, this silly uh, false dichotomy. Mm. Yeah. Without, I mean, without forgetting the essential problem with, the classical reformist approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I'm I'm absolutely with yeah. you and all of that. I think you put that really, really lucidly. I'm going to nip that from you. I'm going to make sure I copy that out. Um, but I still think that we need to remember uh, that you can't sneak up yeah. on capital. Right, right. You know what I mean? You you can't expropriate it without it noticing. So there's there's going to be confrontation. There is necessarily going to be some process of economic dislocation you can't have a smooth kind of you know imperceptible transition and, and that's that's where that's the rocks that uh, that that reformism sort of uh, runs aground on is that is yeah. that if, if you are not in, in engaging in those ruptures and building your capacities as at each phase of the game at the point when those reforms uh are are, are incredibly uh, uh vulnerable and under attack as i talked i talked about this um with a couple uh, a couple of my uh, guests, particularly Mike Beggs, a good political economist uh, down there in Australia, as uh, you know, he, he said, you know, at the height of power of the workers movement in the 1970s, they were also the most vulnerable. And, and yet they, yeah. they hadn't been focused on building the kinds of resources they would need to defend their positions, defend their gains and then and then move on, uh, you know, to, to the next to the next kind of qualitative level. Uh, and so they were very easily swept aside. 
um, and, and the neoliberal wave that would be inaugurated, uh, you know, at, at, in the midst of capitalist uh, economic crisis and political crisis that led to Thatcher and Reagan and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I, yeah, I, whole, I wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. Um, and it's, it's, it's fraught. It's, it, but I guess, you know, this is, a, this is a good place to end is that that's all there is. That's all there is. That's what we've got. You know, and I think this 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 choice between dual power or the democratic road to socialism that we're trying to sort of articulate here, uh, I think that's an illusory choice. And 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 what we need to do is we need to have an all hands on deck mentality uh, for approaching in a pragmatic, uh, so but but uh, principled, uh, you know, kind of uh, way. Um, yeah, at, at the risk of saying something I shouldn't. Um, there's, there's, uh, this is something that, yeah, this is something that, that, uh, there's a really great essay in, um, Ellen Maxson's Woods. I'm never sure if it's Ellen Maxson's Woods or, or Maxson's Woods. Yeah, Maxson. Okay, mm-hmm. Maxson's Woods. Um, the retreat from class, which involves actually the, um, the attribution of, uh, various, um, wrong turns to Palantis, which I think she's yeah. wrong about. But, but anyway, um, in the later chapter, she talks about the, um, the importance of um, an inher- uh, uh, inheritance from the classical liberal tradition of its um, emphasis on things like uh, checks and balances on power and mm. things like uh, civil and political liberties. And of course, you, you know, you can't attribute a lot of those liberties to liberals themselves and they're often creating struggle by working people and you know uh, and people who are disenfranchised but at the same time there is this kind of characteristic focus for all its blindness and for all its sort of bad faith in other words in ways in terms of you know economics and um class power there's there's a there's a, a really useful and valuable focus in the liberal tradition on liberties you know and uh mm. uh, on protections that we simply can't throw away as as being somehow in themselves inherently bourgeois that we won't need under a socialist uh, system and that's something that and you're right maybe that's got something to do with Palantis's uh, legal background but it's something that Palantis is very very sensitive to particularly in his final work and that's kind of it's almost the kind of guiding principle of um, of that famous final chapter in um, State Power and Socialism uh, where he sets out his his um, his idea of this inside outside uh, strategy um, uh, of, of uh, a sort of non-dual power pr- um, pr- um, process. Right. It's, this, is, this is a perfect transition. Um, we're going to move to the B side now. Uh, we've been talking for nearly two hours. This has been an incredibly rich conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. I, I hope that the listeners have learned in this process as much as I have in, in preparing for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for you, uh, to you, Ed, for bringing this uh, Rigby book, uh, Lenin's Government, to my attention. It's, a, it's one that's hard to get a hold of. You can find it in libraries. It's rather expensive if you order it from booksellers online. Uh, but uh, folks should check it out. And uh, it really tells a different kind of history about this, and it presents a new set of challenges, right? I mean, this isn't just about debunking Lenin or Leninism or dual power or whatever. It's about you know, laying forward, you know, spelling out exactly what the challenges are for us. Um, and so that we don't put ourselves in a position like Lenin, where we have to, you know, act as the social reactionary and 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 and, and suggest that we should deport all the sex workers or whatever uh, who are liquoring up our soldiers. Like that's such a, you know what I mean? Uh, we we don't want to put ourselves in a position of managing a state that is an absolute and utter crisis 
Um, and so it's one of those be careful what you wish for moments. And I think that what Poulancis articulates is 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 this uh, much more careful democratic road to socialism, which preserves the civil liberties and and the rights uh, that socialists should hold dear. Um, yeah, the rights of sex workers and and and, and otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah, Ed Brooksby, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Punnett Society. We're going to move to the B side now. If you're not a patron, you're missing out big time because we're going to talk about uh, the, the nuts and bolts of socialist strategy. And as always, 